Welcome to The Apple Seed, where we bring you and your family great stories from great storytellers. On today's episode, just a tad of hyperbole. So I got on the headset and I said to the pilot, I said, uh, <laughs> I said, go ahead and roll her over. And he said, roll what over? And I said, roll the plane over. And a bundle of dreams. Every high tide, he could see the mountains. I will get to the mountains and I will see the world, he thought. I'm your host, Sam Payne, and today we bring you stories of unexpected and even outlandish journeys. And no one can take us on an outlandish journey better than tall tale teller Bill Lepp from West Virginia. I chatted with Bill about the work that he hopes his storytelling does on an audience. Here's what Bill told me. Yeah, anything enriching in my story, um, you know, it's probably not there on purpose, and I apologize. (laughs) No, um, somebody once described me, and not flatteringly, as the jelly donut of American storytelling. Meaning, I guess, that I'm all confection with jelly in the middle. Um, And they meant it mean, but I mean, who doesn't like a jelly donut, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Listen, for my money, I find Bill Lepp's stories more nourishing than jelly donuts. But man, jelly donuts are good, aren't they? Here's Difficult Under Adverse Conditions, a story recorded live in the Appleseed studio from Bill Lepp. Thank you very much. I was uh, flying from New York City to Charleston, West Virginia, which means I was on my way to Atlanta. And I'm not really a superstitious person, but in some aspects of my life, I'm very superstitious. For example, I cut my hand and I had to go get stitches and the doctor put 13 stitches in. And I said, Doc, you either got to put one more in or you got to take one out. And she said, why? And I said, because 13 stitches would be bad luck. And she looked at this grievous wound. (laughs) And she said, don't you think you've had the bad luck? And I said, you can't be too sure. So when I fly, I have a little ritual that I go through. I get on the plane and I fly just enough that I get to sit in the exit row. So I get in and I take my, my bag and I put it under the seat in front of me. And then invariably the person in front of me turns around and says, your strap is in my personal zone. And so I have to pull that back. And then I get out of the in-flight magazine and I have to complete the Sudoku puzzle <laughs> before the plane takes off or I know we're all going to die. So... <laughs> I got on the plane, and then, of course, when you sit in the exit row, what happens is the flight attendant comes back, and they lean in, and they say, oh, it's so funny. They say, are you aware that you're sitting in the exit row? And you have to say, yes. And then they say, are you willing and able to help in the event of an emergency? And when they instituted this policy, you had to say, yes. But now you just have to respond verbally. So I generally say something like, Pop-Tarts. And so... (laughs) We went through that process, and I pulled out the in-flight magazine, and I turned to the back, and some inconsiderate person had already completed the easy Sudoku puzzle, jeopardizing the lives of every person on that airplane. So even though we were at LaGuardia, where you have to taxi for three and a half days, I did not complete the puzzle. So I knew we were all going to die. So I just put the magazine back, and I I put my head back, and I went to sleep, because that's... 
how I want it to happen. I don't want to be awake as we plummet 30,000 feet. I want to wake up maybe three feet off the ground and be like, what? And then just like. And then I heard the loudspeaker go off and the pilot came on. You can always tell when it's the pilot because they always start off the same way. They, they want you to know that a competent man or woman, doesn't matter, that a competent, responsible person who is aware that they are in charge of the lives of 300 people is piloting this plane while speaking to you. So when they come on, they always come on the loudspeaker authoritatively and reassuringly. They always start off the same way. They go, uh... This is the pilot speaking. I just thought you might like to know that after we took off from LaGuardia, uh, the plane that took off behind us, ha, 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 he chuckled to let us know nothing was the matter. He said the plane that took off behind us saw some debris on the runway. Ha, ha, ha. We might have blown a tire. Ha, ha, ha. He said, but don't worry about it. We got lots of tires. There's no light in the cockpit indicating that we blew a tire. So just sit back and enjoy your flight. And I thought, I could enjoy my flight a lot better without that information. (laughs) And then I started thinking, he said that there was no light in the cockpit indicating that there was a flat tire. And I thought, does that mean that the light that indicates the flat tire is not illuminated or that no one ever bothered to install a light? to indicate a flat tire. And I thought, well, there's nothing I can do about this, so I'm just going to go back to sleep. So I leaned back, and I could see the flight attendant coming down the aisle, and she stopped in front of me. I was the only person in that exit row, and she leaned over very close, and she said, do you remember before we took off how you said in the event of an emergency you would be willing and able to help? And I thought to myself, that is not what I said. (laughs) What I said was Pop-Tarts. But I agreed that that, you know been my intention and so she said I said yes and she said were you serious and I said well yeah I guess I was and she said good because we do have a flat tire and it's on your side of the plane and we were wondering if you would be willing to change it for us and I thought well you know what that's in my skill set sure I'll change the tire and she said do you need the owner's manual and I said no I've changed the tire before and so I reached over and I opened up the, I punched out the plexiglass and I opened up the exit door and the ramp slid down and I slid down the ramp and I looked and sure enough, we had a flat tire. So I came back up the ramp, went down the aisle of the airplane into the cockpit. Now, when I'm writing a story, I always get to the point where I think to myself, oh, they're not going to believe that part. And that's how far I got in this story before I thought, and, uh, I got down on my hands and knees between the pilot and the co-pilot seat, and there's a little console there, and I gave each one of those guys their cup of coffee, and then there's a little thing with about 15 empty CD cases, $1.20 in pennies, and some empty gum wrappers. And I moved all that, uh, flipped the carpet back, then there's a little latch you flip up, and I started to crank that latch, and that lowers the spare tire on the cable underneath the airplane. And then I went back, oh, I got a headset, I went back down the aisle, uh, went out the door, got on top of the airplane, walked to the back, popped the trunk, and um, there's jumper cables and, you know, some umbrellas and incomplete socket set. And I got the tire iron, and you don't need the jack at 30,000 feet. And went back down the airplane, slid down the ramp, and there was the tire. Now, usually what I do when I change a, a flat tire is I'll put the, the tire iron on a lug nut and then stick it out at sort of, I don't know what degree angle that is, and then, so, you know, more than 45, so we'll just go with 60. It doesn't matter. And then uh, 
I stand on the edge on the end of the of, of the tire iron until it goes like that. And sometimes you have to put two feet on, and then I just sort of ride that down till my feet slide back down onto the ground. Well, that didn't seem like it was going to work in this situation. So I got on the headset and I said to the pilot, "I said, uh, <laughs> I said, go ahead and roll her over." And he said, "Roll what over?" And I said, "Roll the plane over." And he said, "Well." Why would I roll the plane over? And I said, so I can stand on the wing, so I can change this flat tire. And he said, negatory on the rollover. We just served drinks to first class. And I thought, that makes sense. They have more miles than I do. And so what I ended up doing is I just had to sort of get in the wheel and press my back against this side of the wheel, put the tire iron over here, and then just reach out with my foot. Finally, I got all the lug nuts off. I put those in my pockets. I took the spare t- or the flat tire off, rolled that back up, put it in one of the seats, uh, came down. Now I had to catch the spare tire that was hanging on that cord underneath the plane, and I finally grabbed hold of the cable, and it was one of those weird little jobs where there's a right-angle piece of metal with a bolt on the end that goes through the hole in the center of the wheel, and so you have to unscrew that bolt. But what I had to do was I had to bite the cord and then I was holding the tire over my head like this with one hand trying to unscrew that bolt and the whole time I was thinking to myself you know what under adverse conditions this would be nearly impossible but I finally <laughs> I got the spare tire off and it was smaller than the other tires <laughs> had a yellow rim and uh I got that put on, got the lug nuts back on, went up, got in my seat, took the flat tire, because I figured when we got to Atlanta, they were just going to plug that and stick it back on. And I put that under the seat in front of me, and the guy in front of me said, your flat tire is in my personal zone. And uh, I was going to just kick the back of his seat, but I didn't, because that'd be mean. Uh, And then, you know, I left the door unlocked, because I knew that in about 10 miles, I was going to have to go out and check the lug nuts. Well... Everything was fine. We landed. There was no problem. And uh, when I got to my gate to fly to Charleston, they made the announcement that the flight was going to be delayed due to mechanical difficulties. So I just walked home. Bill Lepp with a story called Difficult Under Adverse Conditions. Now, I don't know much about airplane repair, especially airplane repair on an airplane in flight. But I know a little bit about paper airplanes. I can even make a pretty good one. I remember going with my dad and my son to hear a Christmas choir performance at a local junior high school. And we were there to see one of my other children perform, and we thought we'd get there early and get a good seat. And we were waiting in the lobby for a while, and my son was getting kind of antsy waiting there. And I found a pile of printed programs for the concert. Each program made from a single sheet of eight and a half by 11 paper. And I took one from the pile and handed it to my son and invited him to make a paper airplane out of it. Well, he knelt down on the tile floor to have a hard surface to work on. And in a minute, he was done. And he stood up and my dad said, give it a throw. So the kid cocked his arm and set the plane aloft on the air. It made a modest flight across the lobby and then skidded to a stop about midway to the far wall. Well, I congratulated my son on a cool paper airplane. And as I did, I noticed his grandpa, my dad, pulling a printed program from the stack and beginning to fold it. This was grandpa showing his grandson how it's done, make no mistake. And it took grandpa just a few moments to get a paper airplane together. And as soon as he did, He cocked his arm and set his plane aloft on the air, and it sailed across the lobby and landed exactly next to my son's plane. Well, 
You can imagine what happened next. I thought I'd show my dad and my son a thing or two about making paper airplanes. Another printed program was turned into a plane, and away it went. And it landed immediately next to the other two planes. Three generations of us, each bent on showing the rest that he knew how to really make a great plane, each getting just about as far as the others. And it seemed somehow meaningful. I like to think that each of our planes had something special going for it, that I'd figured out a thing or two, and my dad had figured out a thing or two, and my son had figured out a thing or two, and maybe there's a thing or two we might have learned from each other if each weren't so bent on besting the others. That's often the way it is, I guess with paper airplanes, and beyond. Well, that's where Bill's story took me. Where will it take you? And who will you take along? It's great to have you with us, and I want to introduce you to another show from the BYU Radio family of podcasts. The show is called In Good Faith, and in this podcast, Stephen Cat Perry, the host, in each episode talks with a different person about that person's faith tradition. These guests talk about their relationship with the divine that will strengthen your faith, and Steve is a great Listener. It's a podcast that helps you celebrate the power of faith and belief, a podcast on which you'll hear stories and accounts from believers of all kinds told in their own words. You can listen to In Good Faith wherever you hear our show. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, all kinds of places to listen to In Good Faith On Demand. It's a pleasure to be with you today on the Apple Seed. And after that rollicking Bill Lepp story, here's something completely different, a quiet, reflective story, unusual all the same. We're going to join storyteller Shauna Lee in the Apple Seed studio. She's going to share just one of the thousands of stories that comes to her through her grandmother as part of the Dritzilla Jewish storytelling tradition. The story is called The Little pebble that wanted to travel the world. Here's Shauna Lee on the Appleseed. Thank you so much. So great to be here. What a fabulous bunch of people. So the story I'm going to tell you is called The Little Pebble that wanted to travel the world. Now, the question I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask everybody is, is there a point where when you go walking, you'll go, oh, just take this shell. I'll just take this stone and I'll put it in my pocket as a memory. And my husband says, not this big, Shona Lee. You know, that's not going to go in my pockets. So I have to... but. This is why, and it goes like this. At the beginning of the world, there were the mountains, and the mountains, they said, we are magnificent. Self-belief is a very good thing. (laughs) Our heads reach to the heavens. Our roots can feel the very earth that the Creator placed around us. 
If men decide to traverse us, to climb us, they must be prepared to sacrifice their lives. Are we not magnificent? Not like the hills. They just roll about a bit. And the hills, they listened to this and they went, yeah, but you're right. But we connect things. We connect one place with another. We roll delicately. We show that a family can walk from one place to another and the views and the horizons that they can see, we connect. We're not like the mountains, but we do connect. Not like the cliffs. <laughs> they just stop. <laughs> and the cliffs listened and they said, the mountains and the hills are right, but we are special. We mark the beginnings and the ends. We mark the borders. We mark the farewells and the welcomes, the, the returning home and the leaving. We mark the edges of things. We are glorious. People are sad when we recede and happy when they see us appearing through the mist. Not like the boulders. <laughs> They're just rootless. They just roll around. And the boulders, they listened. And the, I always imagine the boulders are a bit like this. They go... <laughs> Yeah, but the things we've seen, man, the places we've been, we've travelled from one glacier to another, we've picked up things that you can only dream of. Sorry, gotta go. Not like the stones. They're just rootless. They're at the whim of every high tide, low tide. They are nothing. And the stones and the pebbles went, yeah, but, but there was no one else to look down on. <laughs> and so the pebbles, they cried to the creator, but what of us? And the creator said, come here. He took some pebbles and took bright, clear river water and crushed them in his hands and he made diamonds. And he threw the diamonds out into the world and he said, there, now, when humans see these, they will be reminded of the beauty of the water and greed will be driven from their hearts. <laughs> <laughs> because even the creator gets it wrong sometimes. <laughs> and then he took the green, the green of the hills, the green of the grass, the green of the trees, crushed them together and made emeralds. He took the blue, the bluest skies, and, and he crushed those and he made, what do you think he made? Sapphires. Sapphires. And for every precious and semi-precious stone, he made these precious things. And each one has a story, but there are more stories than I can tell you. And he made all of these things. Opals. Opals were a bit, well, we don't really know, <laughs> which is why they're a changeable stone. But of course, not everyone could be a precious stone. And so the little stones that were left said, but what of us? Are we nothing? And the creator said, you. You will be the most important of all. For you will be the memories of my people. You will be the prayers of my people. 
Which is why if you go to a Jewish cemetery, you will see not flowers on the graves, but stones. They are prayers. But they are also memories, memories rooted in us, rooted in you. Because that's what you do. Just have that as a memory. And you place it in your pocket. The little pebble that wanted to travel the world. Every high tide he could see the mountains. I will get to the mountains and I will see the world, he thought. Every time the banks of the river swelled, he would find himself in the mud. But it was all right because he would travel. But he never did. Until one day there had been a huge flood and he was stuck in the mud at the side of the river, looking at that mountain, going, yes, yes, if I will it, it will happen. And then, darkness. He was surrounded in darkness. And then the strangest thing happened. It was dark, it was light, it was dark, it was light. There was a horizon, there was nothing. It was light, dark, light, dark. He didn't know what was going on. Because you see, a camel watering itself had placed its hoof and he was stuck in a hoof in the foot of a camel. Have you ever seen a camel's foot? Huge, huge. He could see the mountains, and of course, every time the camel lifted his leg, my goal, oh, it's gone. <laughs> well, you see, the merchant that was leading the camel noticed that the camel was beginning to go lame, that the little pebble, unintentionally, was bruising the foot. And so, when it gets to the outskirts of a village, he stops, and he takes out his little knife that they use, and he lifts up the camel's foot, and he sees the pebble, and he flicks it out. And they go on into their own story. But I'm going to tell you about the pebble. The pebble, for one glorious moment, thought, I can fly! <laughs> Who knew? And it flew up, up, up into the air and straight through a window and into a bowl of boiling soup. <coughs> and the little pebble was going up and down with carrots and goodness knows what, going, hello, hello. Uh, this is more bubbly than the river, even when it's in spate. And then, of course, the woman that was cooking the meal ladled out the soup and gave to her new husband. They had only been married two days. <laughs> he takes a mouthful. The little pebble sees this huge red cave. He goes... <laughs> and again, the pebble thinks, I'm really getting this flying thing down. <laughs> and the pebble flies across and his wife catches it and he says, we've only been married two days, yet you're trying to kill me? <laughs> and she says, I don't know how it got in there. But of course, it was all wet now. And it looked beautiful. She said, it is rather lovely, isn't it? He said, let's keep it as a memory of the day you tried to kill me. <laughs> and they laughed, because they were very in love. And she kept that pebble there, and the little pebble could look out the window and see the mountain and think, my journey, my journey. And they didn't have a lot of money. And he said, you know, I want to get you something special. I want to go to the jeweller and have a ring made. And she said, well, we could afford a little silver, but not a precious jewel. Let's use the little pebble. If it's shined up, it would look beautiful. And so the little pebble was taken into the village, he thinking, this is my journey, this is my journey. And then he was put in this silver cage 
and he didn't like that too much. And some days he would be chopping things, <laughs> and some days he'd be washed, and some days he could bask in the sun. But you see, a pebble measures time very differently to you or I. And time passed. And that couple, they grew up. They had children of their own. They had grandchildren. And you know, when you get older, your knuckles swell a bit. You'll know nothing of this. <laughs> and so the, the ring was a little tight, so she said, I'm just going to take it off and put it in a box. And that's what the little pebble called his dark days. <laughs> because it was put in a box. And he remembered what it was like to be stuck in the hoof of the camel. And he thought, well, I shall just sleep and dream of the mountains. And that's what he did. And then a, a drought struck and their crops failed and they had no money. And she said, you know what? If we took my ring, I want to keep the pebble. That's worth so much to us, but it has no monetary value. But the silver would be enough to buy some new seed. And so the little pebble, poof, blinding light. Oh, oh, this is a different world. He was taken to the jewellers. He was released from the prison. And he was placed on a windowsill. And the seed was brought and the harvest came in. And a crow. A crow saw this shiny little pebble and wanted it. Swooped down, picked it up. And the little pebble said, oh, it's been so long. I can fly. I can fly. I knew I hadn't forgotten. And, and the, the, the wife saw and she said, drop that, drop that. And the crow went, and as it did, the pebble spun down into the garden, into the flower bed, and was lost. You could see the mountain if it peered between the flowers but it had never got there. I wanted such a journey, it thought. It's been a good adventure. Was I wrong to want more? The grandchildren had come to stay. I don't know if you do this here, but they had decided to build a, a cairn. Do you know what a cairn is? It's a group of stones that you pile up into like this sort of shape to remember something. And they wanted to build a cairn in their grandpa, uh, their grandpa and their grandmother's garden as a memory. So they built this cairn. They piled up all these great stones. But they wanted something special on top. Now, the rains had <clears throat> come the night before and it had washed some of the soil away. And there, the youngest grandson saw this little shining pebble and it was perfect and he picked it up. And he said, look, this will go on top. And they put it on top and it was perfect. And they called their parents and they called their grandparents. And the grandparents looked and their grandfather said, that's the pebble you tried to kill me with when we first got married. And their children said, you never told us about this. And, and so they sat while the sun went down and they told the stories of the little pebble. And the little pebble sat there and it looked at the mountain and it said, I might not be able to get to the top of that mountain, but I am at the top 
of my very own mountain and all the stories and the memories that I have given. And that is the story of the little pebble that wanted to travel the world. Shauna Lee with a story called The Little Pebble That Wanted to Travel the World. A reminder that every story is a journey in itself. We thank you for joining us on this journey today. And thanks to Bill Lepp and Shauna Lee for their stories. We hope those stories remind you of the paths you've taken, whether grand or small, and that you'll share those stories and memories with the people you love. After all, sharing and listening to great stories can change your family's world. The Appleseed is produced by Wendy Folsom, Sam Payne, and Brian Tanner. Our audio engineers are Ashton Parkinson and Carly Wilson. The rest of the Appleseed team is Kelly Wehrmeister, Trent Horton, Evadane Hendricks, Miriam Arce, and Tristan Schetzel. A special thanks to the subscribers of our podcast who rate us or leave reviews. You help people find the show. We also love to receive emails at the Appleseed at BYU.edu. Your thoughts and comments help us to shape the future of the Appleseed. We're pleased and proud to be among the many podcasts produced by the BYU Radio family. And you can find episodes of the Appleseed wherever podcasts are found, on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne, and the whole team can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed. Appleseed.